Have you ever wondered where the biggest housing bubble in the world is? I'll answer that for you because recently the Swiss investment bank UBS named Toronto the number one real estate housing bubble in the world. Above Vancouver, but also London and Paris, San Francisco, New York, Tokyo, anywhere in the world. I'm Gabe Friedman, and this week I took a look at what happened to put Canada's biggest city at the bottom of this list. Naima Blonder is an architect and urban planner based in Toronto, where she co-founded a firm called Smart Density. And she's been tireless in making videos, appearing in debates, explaining what's wrong with the city's housing system and how to fix it. Blonder, I think it's fair to say, sees Toronto's housing problems as primarily connected to a lack of adequate supply. And she points to what she and others call the missing middle, which is to say Toronto builds houses where a single family may live, and it builds gigantic skyscrapers of like 20 stories and up. But it doesn't really construct many new three or four level buildings with around eight to 10 units. She talked about why this is, why it's Torontonians' fault, and how we can fix it. As always, this interview is edited for clarity and brevity. So Nama, thanks so much for coming on Down to Business to talk to me today. Thanks for having me. So you often draw on your own experience to explain what's wrong with Toronto, and you've talked about your family's hunt for a three-bedroom condo in downtown Toronto. Can you tell me about that experience? Exactly. Okay, so let's take a step back. I moved to Toronto almost a decade ago. I am originally from Tel Aviv, but, you know, the other part of the world that is not North America, there aren't any houses in downtown okay let's <laughs> and, and you know you you raise your kids in a in in an apartment and that is the urban setting and you know i always say there aren't any backyards in paris right and yet you would probably love to raise your kids there and live there and for me coming here from tel aviv i also studied and lived in paris for a while then you realize that Okay, I get it. There are houses with backyards and people think that is the ideal form of, you know, raising a family. But the other option does not exist. So the apartments for families is not something that you have here in in Toronto. So the condo option when you want to, to purchase your apartment doesn't really exist. Now, 2017, five years ago, the city of Toronto came up with the Growing Up Design Guidelines, which is basically forcing, I would say, developers that 25% of all the units would be two and three bedrooms. But you know what? We're not even there. Like, go. good luck to you if you're trying to even find a four-bedroom condo. That's one of the things that gave me pause because there are families that want to live in condos and not in houses between the market. Usually if there's demand for something and people have money to pay, then it'll merge somewhere. So is there like a reason for that? It's the chicken and the egg. So first of all, you would talk to developers and I did that and I invited a developer to answer that question. And basically I said, there's a big group of people that could not afford a, a house. And just to be clear, I'm not saying that a house is the ideal form, but let's just say people cannot afford a house. And those people are not willing to commute. They want to live near urban amenities. They want to be able to walk or take transit to work and understand that there's a trade-off. And if they cannot live in a house, probably an apartment or a condo could give them that lifestyle. Currently in the market, it's really, really hard to find that product that could 
fit families, young families, families of all sizes, it could be multi-generational, whatever. There is a, a huge missed opportunity, a, a business opportunity that I think developers are missing, and that is that demographic. And going back to when I asked that developer, and he said, no young couple is willing to buy something on paper now because our market is so much geared towards investors. It's price per square foot. Construction is expensive. Those larger units don't sell. I think if I'm recalling correctly, the developer said to you that basically banks don't finance new condo developments unless they pre-sell 70% of them. And so many people who buy an apartment on spec aren't buying it to actually live on. They're buying it perhaps to live in, perhaps to rent. And it's easier to rent a smaller unit. And so it's easier to pre-sell smaller units. It's cheaper. It's cheaper. The smaller unit will be cheaper than the larger one. So there's a larger buyer base for it. And so these just don't get built. And so this is just a condition of the way homes are built now, I guess. But you know, all I'm hearing is we need to educate our market better. And I find it hard to believe that you won't find younger couples who are willing to invest in something down the road. Again, the opportunity here is about educating the market and don't even get me started on, you know, successful companies that had to go through that learning curve of talking to their ideal market. Because let's talk about it from the business perspective. Everyone is going after the same investor. And, you know, one of the first business books I read is The, the Blue Ocean, right? How to be in, a, in an area where the competition is not. How you create a product that is hard to compare. If we're talking about condos for families, the opportunity here is huge. And you have all the developers competing for, you know, on the same investor. Well, all they need is just to bring a new product to the market. And, you know, one day that he, this investor, investor's heaven uh, might not be the case anymore in Toronto. And regardless, the business opportunity is here because of the high demand. Toronto attracts immigration, it attracts talent. And, you know, people coming here, not looking for the house, let news break, looking for that. What attracts people in Toronto is that urban feel. And that is something that we can't have in the suburbs. You also contributed to a report on housing affordability in Toronto. And in general, you talk a lot about the, quote, missing middle. In Toronto, in the downtown, there are some older multi-unit buildings scattered around, but we're not really building them anymore. What happened there? Here's the thing. You go back 40 years ago. If you look at the land use map of the official plan, and the vast majority of this map, the color is yellow. And the yellow means that it, the, the professional name for it is neighborhoods. And you were basically limited to low-rise residential single-family houses. It could be detached, semi-detached, townhouse, whatever. But you were not allowed to build anything that is multi-unit. So when you look at those neighborhoods and you talk to me about the affordability crisis, it starts there because, okay, 70% you weren't allowed to build. On top of that, Ed, Oak Park, natural open space, you're not allowed to build there as well. That makes total sense. Now ask me, where am I allowed to build? So what is designated mixed use in the official plan counts for 7% of the city. So when you're talking to me about cost of land and scarcity, it started there in policy that we had for decades that allows you to build something only in the 7% of the city's area. So that's crazy. Only now the city of Toronto is willing to change that. The math is 
one family per one lot. Now, the city of Toronto is trying to come up with a new policy of how can we gently intensify those neighborhoods. Again, that is the professional term for those neighborhoods in Toronto. And only now the city is getting into what, if you heard of the term of the missing middle, they are now changing the policy that did not allow you for decades to build anything else. Now, someone told me, you know, the missing middle has missed the train. And there's something also true about that because of cost of land and cost of construction. It could be very much that the viability of building small-scale multi-units, you know, imagine Montreal, okay? So we're talking like four stories, not anything taller than that. But the city is now envisions that we could build up to four stories, multi-unit residentials in the neighborhood. So the neighborhoods, you know, that's 70% of the city. So we're in an interesting intersection to see if it will ever materialize. So why did that happen in the first place? Was was part of it that automobiles allowed for more spread out living? So that was the dream. You know, Toronto in the 70s, that, that's what they did. They built more neighborhoods. You had streetcar access to those neighborhoods. The car became more prominent. And we can talk about the use of the car uh, until these days. I mean, I did that uh, comparison to Tokyo. And then eventually I said, 70% of the people who live in Tokyo use transit on a daily basis. And here in Toronto, you know, 70% of Torontonians use the car on a daily basis. I'll go back to the example of my friend who moved to the suburbs. They have to have two cars because there isn't good transit in the suburbs. The use of the car and affordability is also a direct link because the more we spread out because of the car and because we want those single family houses, you have to have your car in order to get out of there, to work, to commute to work, go get your groceries or even go for coffee or take your kids to a friend. And, and when I say affordability, it's also like the infrastructure level of it. We need to build roads and you can see why it's even not only less affordable, but also less sustainable. If you really look at it in like, are we building something that will be affordable in the future and sustainable in the future? And the answer is no for those types of suburban single family home. And it doesn't have to be, when I say suburban, it doesn't have to be outside of Toronto. We have enough within the city. It's like I said once, Toronto, it's its, its own suburb. So you're all about smart density. That's the name of your company. Yes. And, you know, it seems like a lot of your message is that if we could build housing more densely, then we could build more units. And in turn, more supply would help lower the price. Me, me, me who, who, you know, live in a condo, bought a condo, this is a way more sustainable uh, form of housing. I use less land. I use less resources, urban resources, less infrastructure. I walk everywhere. Like you see the levels of sustainability that this style of living brings in comparison to, you know, a single family neighborhood. Now we're going to pause a minute for a short break. Right. You know, so Increasing housing supply would be one obvious solution, except it seems like we can't do that because developers say we're building as fast as we can because we want to make as much profit as we can. And, you know, you've also said, like, make zoning and building codes more flexible to allow denser housing. But a lot of surrounding communities object to this. Yeah. 
we've already lowered interest rates. How does it start? I'm glad you said that we're building as fast as we can. I, I'm not sure it, it's the case. Currently in Toronto, getting a building approved takes you about three years. And that is a process that you're looking regardless of the m- number of units you, you want to build. So that is, you, you can see that is a little bit ridiculous. Maybe the, there, there are two routes, committee of adjustment and rezoning, but they both take you the same time. So you're looking at a process of two to three years. So looking how you can make the approval process smoother, more clear on the objectives and how you know it could be done, I think that is a really good place to start. Usually, I would say not everything needs to be, you know, the solution is regulation and policy. Absolutely not. However, you know, in the case of building more family-oriented, family-friendly units, that could be the case because the city put this policy, the Growing Up Design Guidelines, five years ago. And now we are starting seeing the results of that policy, of course, because it takes time. I just, you know, I mentioned how long it takes the building to get approved. So I'm optimistic that that policy at least will bring some good and positive change. And the most important thing that you mentioned is that how much the community objects everything. I know they think they're, you know, fighting the developer, but they are actually contributing to the affordability crisis themselves because supply is a big part of handling, you know, the crisis. And again, I would be the first person to say that we perhaps not, the unit mix is not the unit mix that reflects our diversity, but it's still something that we are far, far behind. I think the percentage is around 20% of what you know, we actually need if you compare the uh, numbers of immigrants that are expected to come to Toronto. So putting all of this into account and then you have communities that go to their local councillor and object and local councillors, you know, they're politicians. That's what they see. And we are going to have our municipal elections uh, in, in less than two weeks. So that is very much affecting the way we build, design, plan, and uh, because in Toronto, everything is being you know, voted on in council. So you can imagine how much the community is getting. That local empowerment really got, got out of control. Huh. Absolutely. So local empowerment got out of control. You're saying part of the problem is that politicians are too accountable to people. They listen to the loudest voice. And the loudest voice in the room often is the one that says no, because you know, they are very passionate <laughs> about saying no. And we can talk about our entire community engagement uh, process. You know, before the pandemic, all the open houses were at 7 p.m. Now, I don't know about you. I have two kids. Just try to come to my home at 7 p.m. It's the worst time of the day to ask me about the development, con, you know, right. being proposed in my street. As I said, I live downtown. I would love to see more families in my immediate street so I could really, you know, develop and nurture that sense of community with other parents. But would I go and say, yes, Bill, that that development will bring more families on, you know, at 7 p.m.? Probably not. That is that is a lot to ask from, you know, just... No, that makes sense. That is the community engagement system we have. So who would go? Those who object. And then they make their voice heard. And that's what politicians listen to. And I can tell you that I volunteer with like kind of a yes in my backyard, but specifically on affordable housing. Just to give you a sense, our planning system allows, you know, people to not only dictate about their house, but also saying, I don't want 
anything else down the street. I don't want any new type of building. And let's admit it also, people who don't look like, you know, those privileged homeowners. And our planning system give that power to to those people. And when I became an urban planner, I am a licensed architect and I became also an urban planner. And one of the things that I remember is that an urban planner needs to speak on behalf of the future residents of any given given site, any given area. And I just love that because we need to speak to be the voice of those who haven't yet moved to the neighborhood because they didn't have the opportunity. So we need to remember that it's not just about the current homeowners. It's also about creating opportunities for others. Right. So is there a single policy that would lead to more housing, if that's the answer? Making the approval process with clear objectives. Right now, it's kind of a big you know, negotiation. The policy is not clear enough, uh, and there's a lot of room to, to work within it. The approval process has to be shorter than three years. Like right now, it takes the same amount of time to build a building and get it approved. That is crazy. We need to make the approval process shorter. How? What would what would you get rid of? So make the the community consultation laser focused on the things that matter and make sure that the policy objectives are clear and it, it has to be streamlined in in a way. Make sure that it is appropriate to the scale. So everything that what we, if we go back to that part of the conversation about the missing middle, that needs to be as of right. So taking the approval process out of the equation. If we want to see the missing middle built, again, missing middle up to four stories in those old neighborhoods, we have to take the approvals out of the equation. Uh, someone could build it, build it out tomorrow without, you know, apply for a permit, of course, but <laughs> you know what I mean? No approval yeah. process that takes you three years. So the planner won't be, won't be involved. So let's say you have a lot of land and that lot could accommodate a low-rise apartment building up to four stories. It will usually be, you know, 20 or 30 units, you know, all together. And it means that you as a developer, as a small-scale developer, could apply tomorrow morning for a building permit. You worked with your architect and you design a beautiful building. And once you have your building permit in hand, you can start construction. So that would just cut the process in half. Okay. It sounds like we just need to prioritize density and things like that. And if we do that, then we could start to see changes. Getting those small scale development to be as of right and where you're allowed to build, you know, a building up to four stories that has, that is a multifamily, multi-unit building. You know, when we did some studies, we, we called it the eightplex. Uh, so eight units on on a single lot. So imagine like a, one property that used to have a house. So you de- demolish the house, but build an eightplex on it. So it will be two units per floor and four stories. But it could be larger than that. So if you have, you know, two or three properties assembled together, then you have a low rise building and that low rise building could easily be of 20 units. So you see, it's those things that, if, if I'm telling you that it's going to take you two and a half years to get approved, you can see why it's not going to work. It's just everything is way too expensive. The land is too expensive. Property tax is too expensive. Construction cost is very expensive. You don't In 20 units, if you don't do something radical to make it work, 
you can't have 20 units and ask it to be approved in the same way that a, a building of 200 units, 400 units is currently being approved. You just can't. So if we want to start somewhere, this is the place to start. Yeah. And you said earlier, we might have already missed the boat that real estate has gotten so expensive now that it's hard to make housing affordable in the sort of densest parts of the city. Is that true, do you think? I know it's true. That's what I said. Something something got to give and we need to, to make something radical. So, for example, taking out the approval process out of the equation could be one place to start. But the feasibility, when we did several feasibility, just doesn't make it to the finish line because either land is too expensive, construction cost is too expensive, development charges, which is not not a small amount of money that the city is uh, asking for each unit. And recently in the last council, the city voted, council voted to exempt fourplexes from development charges. But basically we're talking about it and the amount is going to be increased in November by 50%. So starting in November, every unit the development charges will start at around $80,000. So imagine, you know, you have a building of 20 units, 80,000 multi 20. Now, when you have 200 units, 400 units, that is a really big check. So, and and that is a part that, that is also part of, you know, financial performa. So all of this is what makes makes or you know make makes it or breaks it break it for buildings to be built. So what we are seeing, I'm I even start seeing that mid-rise buildings are not financially feasible. You know those not not a tower, but you know in the range of eight, nine, ten stories, it's really hard to make the numbers work. I see. Maybe just a final question: Will housing be affordable at some point? very optimistic person, uh, you know, in my nature. So I would say yes. And we need great minds and passionate people in the industry to make it work. But we also need, you know, the communities on board and to say yes and yes in my backyard. And yes, we, you know, we understand that houses is not the only form to live in in the city. (laughs) It's almost like funny even to say that. Uh, And we are welcoming other types of of buildings to our neighborhood. So it's not just the government, it's not just city council, it's not just brilliant and talented architects and developers, it's also people that eventually, you know, find those applications. Naima, thanks so much for talking to me. Thanks for having me. I appreciate the invitation. That was Naima Blonder, co-founder of the Toronto-based Smart Density, an architecture and urban planning firm. Thanks to my guest, and thank you for listening. Down to Business was a team effort. Bryce Hall composed and performed the original music on the show, designed the logo, and executive produced this episode. Victoria Wells, Noella Ovid, and Pamela Heaven provided web support and editing. I'm Gabe Friedman, and Down to Business will return next week. Until then, you can find all your business news at financialpost.com.